Hello, and welcome to the 11th Hour Series. As well, we're so happy that you have joined us. Um, we're here every day at 11. Uh, look on the internet, and you're always welcome to join us as well. And perhaps one day you'll join us for a class, too. Okay, so hello, everyone. And thank you for coming to the 11th Hour Lecture Series. Today, nonfiction writer Amy Butcher is going to talk to us about emojis. <laughs> and much more. <laughs> And much more. Amy is amazing. Are any of Amy's students here today? I know, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So we are very excited. She's going to be fantastic. Amy is an award-winning essayist and memoir writer. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and many other esteemed venues, and it has been featured on BBC Radio and National Public Radio. Amy is an assistant professor of English at Ohio Wesleyan University. Please welcome me, and please join me in welcoming, please welcome me, no, no, please join me, <laughs> do not welcome me, I don't want any more welcomes, please join me in welcoming Amy in her sharing with us the small and pixelated made large from grievance to groundbreaking change. And hi, Margaret, I just, I want to greet you too, of Thank course, you. you're you welcome, so you're welcome, thank you for being here. Um, hi everyone, um, I'm Amy Butcher and I'm going to talk to you a little bit today. Um, I want to thank you for coming out for the 11th hour lecture. Um, I'm going to, and, and frankly for indulging me in a little lecture about uh, emojis and essays, uh, which is hopefully a phrase that probably no one has used ever. Um, but here we are. Um, so I was a student here at the University of Iowa um, seven years ago, um, and I, had a, a, I have a little story for you that I, I want to share, um, because we never know when our writing goes out into the world what's going to happen with it. Um, and I've had something really wild and, frankly, kind of silly and outrageous happen in the past two years um, that I thought I'd share with you. But I'm sharing it because I think it's largely a testament to the power of the essay and what the essay as a form can do. Um, so for those who are unfamiliar, and I know a lot of you are in my essay boot camp, so you know all about the essay. Um, what is an essay? It's essentially a, a piece of writing that is merging the qualities of beauty and truth. So finding an artful way to share some aspect um, of, of reality and of human experience. Um, John Degata, who was my mentor here at the University of Iowa, he's the director of the nonfiction writing MFA program, talks about a really powerful essay is essentially a mind on the page. Um, Philip Lopate says that essays are an intuitive, groping path, and according to Bernard Cooper, they, quote, magnify some small aspect of what it means to be human. Um, now, if you're in my class, you also know that I love this quote by Vivian Gornick, sort of for its abstractness and the sense of, of a journey. She writes especially that truly well-written essays, quote, take the reader on a journey, make the piece arrive, and bring us into a clearing where the sense of things is greater than it was before. So what does all this mean exactly? It means that the best essayists are working to harness a very particular and generally personal truth as a means of speaking to the grander world, a sense of a universal experience, our shared thinking and frustrations. And in March of 2016, what I was frustrated about, believe it or not, were emojis. Now hear me out. Already I can probably guess that some of you are resistant to the idea of emojis, and I get it. In a lot of ways, it's the language of the obnoxious millennials, one of the many symptoms of a culture more interested in staring at a screen than having a genuine face-to-face -face human connection. But it's important to note that however small, however pixelated, however silly they might be, emojis are only the most recent development in mankind's long history of employing pictures to convey meaning. 
You've seen these, you know what they are. Before we had telephones, we had a means of warning or sharing with others that, hey, there's a really tasty animal not far from here, and you know what? We found a way to cook it because we've always loved a really good barbecue. Visual components have long been a part of our human attempt to communicate, beginning perhaps most famously with, yes, this 35,000-year-old pig found on a cave in Indonesia. Whether we're resistant or not, our species has a long history of employing visual elements as a means of communicating matters of importance. War, food sources, danger, celebrations. Fast forward to today, and we still use images, uh, although they're much more pixelated and, frankly, varied. Now, judge all you want, but I'm not ashamed to admit that from time to time, I will use some of these sometimes. Certainly, there is a time and a place for an emoji. And as a writer, I obviously place tremendous value in the written word. I hope that goes without saying. But I don't believe in limiting oneself in the act of expression, nor do I think that the two must be mutually exclusive. On the contrary, I think the two used in tandem can create for a very meaningful and expressive response. So in March of 2016, upon news that one of my university colleagues, a very dear friend and a remarkable medievalist, was awarded tenure, I wanted to send her what amounts to essentially a visual congratulations. I wanted to send her a hardworking professional woman who I felt was representative of what I saw her to be. But alas, This is half of you, right? This represents half of you. Um, alas, in the world of our emoji vocabulary, women were only ever being pampered, or they were preparing to walk down the aisle, or they were being remarkably sassy and or preparing to visit Hugh Hefner's sprawling, grotesque mansion. Together. This troubled me, because sure, to a certain extent, these are just emojis, and a lot of us write them off altogether as the language of the youth. But 92% of smartphone users, regardless of age, report using emojis, with young women and young men making up the largest demographic. In fact, when asked to respond to the idea that, quote, emojis express feelings more accurately than words, end quote, 84% of young women and 75% of young men agreed. It's not good. <laughs> what does this mean? It means that these tiny, insignificant images play a larger role than we might think, and through their frequent use, they begin to create an everyday narrative. In this case, that women are weak or vain, indulged or unintelligent. They are not, in other words, getting tenure, nor are they programming computer software, performing surgery, curing disease. So I wrote an essay. It's really the only thing I know how to do. A meditation on the lack of strong professional female emojis and the way that the small lack of representation on our screen amidst hundreds of pixelated images, including even a bento box, a ghost, and yes, a little dollop of digital poop, represents a larger lack of representation of strong women in popular culture. Because, what, uh, because, because of their frequent use by millions of people everywhere, these tiny, seemingly insignificant images, whether we want them to or not, begin to create this everyday narrative. In this case, that women are weak. They are not, in other words, getting the tenure that they deserve. And they are not, as my friend is, leading a class titled outrageously, simply, Black Death. I knew from my training here at the University of Iowa that the best essays often start with something small and personal 
And then they work over time to engage a more universal concept or a, quote, big picture idea. In the case of this particular essay, I began first with emojis and my frustration at not having strong women among them. And then I moved to more broadly examine female representation, the inequalities that still remain for women in the workplace, and in academia, uh, academia excuse me, more specifically. Amazingly, the essay was picked up and published by the New York Times. And even more amazingly, a few months later, Google engineers created a proposal for 11 new professional female emojis citing my article as their inspiration. Thank you. Then, in July 2016, the Unicode Emoji Subcommittee, and yes, this is a real thing, approved them. And they rolled out as part of the new iPhone iOS software last year so that they are now a default on every iPhone everywhere. Because of the essay, we now have a visual representation of the women I have always known, dedicated and driven and passionate, enamored more with progress and intellectual integrity than the color of their nails. It's maybe not what Philip Lopate or John Degada were expecting. But the best essays that I know find some small facet of experience and employ it as a vehicle, a catalyst, a means of discussing a larger issue. The less predictable, the less obvious, and even the more overlooked, I think, the better. In other words, no one was writing an essay about emojis because it seemed silly. And yet it's exactly that essay that created change. Virginia Woolf knew this, of course and found a moth. And of course, some of you are probably, most of you, I would imagine, are familiar with her essay, The Death of a Moth. Here she talks about, again, looking at a moth on a cold fall day and realizing its own mortality and thus her own mortality. She writes, the same energy which inspired the rooks, the plowmen, the horses, and even, it seemed, the lean bareback downs sent the moth fluttering from side to side of his square of the window pane. One could not help watching him. One was, indeed, conscious of a queer feeling of pity for him. The possibilities of pleasure seemed that morning so enormous and so various that to have only a moth's part in life and a day moth's at that appeared a hard fate, and his zest in enjoying his meager opportunities to the full, pathetic. He flew vigorously to one corner of his compartment, and after waiting there a second, flew across to the other. What remained for him but to fly to a third corner, and then to a fourth? That was all he could do, in spite of the size of the downs, the width of the sky, the far-off smoke of houses, and the romantic voice now and then of a steamer out at sea. What he could do, he did. Watching him, it seemed as if a fiber, very thin but pure, of the enormous energy of the world had been thrust into his frail and diminutive body. As often as he crossed the pane, I could fancy that a thread of vital light became visible. He was little or nothing but life. Yet because he was so small and so simple a form of the energy that was rolling in at the open window and driving its way through so many narrow and intricate corridors in my own brain and then those of other human beings, there was something marvelous as well as pathetic about him. It was as if someone had taken a tiny bead of pure life and decking it as lightly as possible with down and feathers had set it dancing and zigzagging to show us the true nature of life. Thus displayed, one could not get over the strangeness of it. One is apt to forget all about life, seeing it humped and bossed and garnished and cumbered, so that it has to move with the greatest circumspection and dignity. Again, the thought of all that life might have been had he been born in any other shape caused one to view his simple activities with a kind of pity. Annie Dillard, too, focused on the small, 
in her beautiful essay, Living Like Weasels, where she found a wild weasel one day while out for a walk. And realizing how raw and organic and authentic this weasel was to him, his true self, she began to think about our own freedom, our own liberties, the choices we make daily. She writes, I would like to learn or remember how to live. I come to Holland's Pond not so much to learn how to live as, frankly, to forget about it. That is, I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. Shall I suck warm blood, hold my tail high, walk with my footprints precisely over the points of my hands? But I might learn something of mindlessness, something of the purity of living in the physical sense, and the dignity of living without something of mindlessness, something of the pure, uh, sorry, I skipped that line, bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity, and dying at the last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, as the weasel lives as he should. And I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I missed my chance. I should have gone for the throat. I should have lunged for that streak of white under the weasel's chin and held on, held on through mud and into the wild rose, held on for a dearer life. We could live under the wild rose as weasels, mute and uncomprehending. I could very calmly go wild. I could live two days in the den, curled, leaning on mouse fur, sniffing bird bones, blinking, licking, breathing musk, my hair tangled in the roots of grasses. Down is a good place to go, where the mind is single. Down is out, out of your ever-loving mind, and back to your careless senses. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. Could two live that way? Could two live under the wild rose and explore by the pond so that the smooth mind of each is as everywhere present to the other and as received and as unchallenged as falling snow? We could, you know. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop, let your musky flesh fall off in shreds, and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. And in my very favorite example, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful essay uh, by Brian Doyle um, titled A Sin, Doyle found a moment of confrontation with his son, an experience so common to parenting that it is almost laughable. But I want to share this short essay with you, and it is indeed very short, because I feel it demonstrates so remarkably exactly what we are talking about, the very small made large. So again, this is A Sin by Brian Doyle. Committed a sin yesterday in the hallway at noon. I roared at my son. I grabbed him by the shirt collar. I frightened him so badly that he cowered and wept. 
And when he turned to run, I grabbed him by the arm so roughly that he flinched. And it was that flicker of fear and pain across his face, the bright, eager, holy, riveting face I have loved for 10 years that stopped me then and haunts me this morning, for I am the father of his fear. I sent it snarling into his heart, and I can never get it out now, which torments me. Yes, he was picking on his brother, and yes, he had picked on his brother all morning, and yes, this was the culmination of many edgy incidents already, and no, he hadn't paid the slightest attention to warnings and remonstrations and fulminations, and yes, he had been snide and superlous all day, and yes, he had deliberately done exactly the very thing he had been specifically warned not to do for murky reasons, but still, I roared at him, and I grabbed him, and I terrified him, and I made him cower. And now there is a dark, evil wriggle between us that makes me sit here with my hands over my face, ashamed to the bottom of my bones. I do not know how sins can be forgiven. I grasp the concept. I admire the genius of the idea. I suspect it to be the seed of all real peace. I savor the Tutus and the Gandhis who have the mad courage to live by it but I do not understand how foul can be made fair. What is done cannot be undone, and my moment of rage in the hallway is an indelible scar on his heart and mine. And while my heart is a ragged old bag after nearly half a century of slings and stings, he is still new, eager, open, suggestible, innocent. He has committed only the small sins of a child, the halting first lies, the failed test paper hidden in the closet, the window broken in petulance, the stolen candy bar, the silent witness as a classmate is bullied, the insults flung like bitter knives. Whereas I am a man, and I have had many lies squirming in my mouth, and I have committed calumny, and have evaded the mad and the ragged in the street, ignored the stinking Christ, his rotten teeth, his cloak of soggy newspapers, his voice of broken glass. No God can forgive what we do to each other, only the injured can summon that extraordinary grace. And where such grace is born, we cannot say, for all our fitful genius and miraculous machinery. We use the word God so easily, so casually, as if our label for the incomprehensible meant anything at all. And we forget all too easily that the wriggle of holy is born only through the stammer and stumble of us who are always children. So we turn again and again to each other and bow and ask forgiveness and mill what mercy we can muster from the muddle of our hearts. The instant I let go of my son's sinewy arm in the hallway, he sprinted away and slammed the door and flew off the porch and ran down the street, and I stood there simmering in shame. And then I walked down the hill into the laurel thicket as dense and silent as the dawn of the world, and I found him there huddled and sobbing. We sat in the moist green dark for a long time, not saying anything, the branches burly and patient. Finally, I asked for his forgiveness, and he asked for mine, and we walked out of the woods, changed men. It's a beautiful essay. Here we begin with the small confrontation, the frustration that Doyle has with his own self. And within the span of no less or no more than 500 words, we have moved to a larger conversation on faith and compassion, on empathy and fear and forgiveness. Indeed, these little bursts of human energy and life are everywhere. And the origin of the essay insists that we needn't be, say, Cheryl Strayed and set off on a several thousand mile trek risking Giardia 
in order to share a meaningful experience with someone who is not us. The origin of the essay places significance on the meaningful nature of meditative, thoughtful communication, of what can happen when we magnify, quote, some small aspect of what it means to be human, as Bernard Cooper writes, even if that aspect is pixelated, animated, and indeed very small. So, I'm happy to take questions, but I also want to task you with a little bit of essayistic homework. Because I can, I have the microphone. <laughs> Unpleasant as it may be, I want you to brainstorm the last time you felt truly angry or frustrated, confused or overwhelmed. I want you to put pressure on why that is. Write down where you are, write down who you are, and then write about it. Philip Lopate writes that the best essays begin in a place of curiosity or doubt or confusion. When you think about that moment, where were you? What do you remember about the location, the scene, if you will? What were you doing? Jot down all of the visceral qualities that come to mind, the smells, the sounds, the sights. These are what invite in an outside reader and make them care about your moment of frustration. Finally, put pressure on what the smaller moment might represent. How does it speak to a larger concern or irritant? How might you transcend and move beyond the personal to suggest a more universal, shared experience? Why does it bug you? What does it say about who we are as a people, or maybe where we are as a society, as a species that can do better? If you're lucky in writing this, you might find that you feel better. And if you're luckier still, you'll have a piece of art. You'll have taken someone else on a journey. You'll have made your peace arrive, as Vivian Gornick writes. And you will have brought us into a clearing where the sense of things is suddenly a little greater than it was before.